sports fans can be some of the most dedicated people you'll probably ever meet. Author Robert G. Spinney explains in one of his books on how sports can expose how we behave when we love something and are deeply committed to it. He writes, When I was 11 years old, my father took me to a Chicago Bears football game. The game was on my mind long before we got there. The night before, I could scarcely sleep due to my excitement. But I managed to fall asleep, and we awoke early the next morning. No one had to drag me out of bed. It was a cold and windy day in Chicago, and my father and I prepared for the game. We ate a big breakfast. We packed food. We dressed warmly and took extra blankets. We left our house early in the morning because it was a long drive to Old Soldier Field. and We knew there would be additional game day traffic. Parking was a nightmare, so we trekked many blocks to the stadium along with the other Bears faithful. The wind was howling. We bent over as we walked, straining against the wind and under the load of all our game supplies. And at last, we arrived at the stadium and found our seats. Although it had taken us over two hours to drive into the city, find a parking place, and hike to our seats, we were there long before kickoff time. There was no way we were going to be late for the game. It was too important. The game was great. We screamed and cheered for over three hours. No boredom here. Our attention was riveted on the field. It was freezing outside on those cold metal bleacher seats, and the wind whipped through the outdoor stadium. But we didn't mind. We enjoyed fellowship with the strangers seated around us as we were bound together by our common love of football. We were actually a little sad when the final horn sounded and the game came to an end. We slowly followed out the stadium and then shuffled along the sidewalks with thousands of other fans in our car. Thanks to the traffic jam around the football stadium, we inched our way toward home. My dad and I talked football the whole way home, reliving the game's highlights. We finally arrived at our house well after dark. The game had taken the entire day. We had adjusted our schedule to make time for it. The tickets and downtown parking were rather expensive. We were cold. We were tired. But do you know why my father and I did this? Because we loved it. No one had to force me to do it. Even now, 35 years later, I look back on that day at Soldier Field and see some important things about myself. When I really love something, I don't mind making sacrifices for it. When something is truly important to me, I'm not bored by it. When I am passionate about something, I don't need to be told to do it. When I really enjoy something, time is not really a factor. When I find other people who share my passion, we enjoy a special bond of friendship. My father and I made friends that day with complete strangers at that Chicago Bears game because common commitment creates warm fellowship. I attended the Chicago Bears game a long time ago. However, it presents a challenge to me today. Is that how I love the Lord Jesus Christ? That football game demonstrates how I behave when I am passionate about something. Does my behavior show that I am truly passionate about the kingdom of God? Sports fans like Mr. Spinney are not much different than the things we love too, right? I hear deer season is upon us. I imagine some of us who are hunters have asked for time off from work to get in that annual tradition of being in that deer stand. I was told recently by one young man that a church was literally cut in half in their attendance recently on a Sunday. Let's just say that's not because of COVID-19 precautions. 
with holiday season upon us. I imagine many of us find certain commitments we're not willing to give up. Maybe wearing that tacky snowman sweater or wearing those strange antler deers that you think are cool but everyone thinks is tacky, yet you're committed to your tradition. Whatever the object of our affections is, becomes obvious to those around us how important something is by the level of commitment we give towards it. The steadfast commitment of a soldier who does not leave a fellow soldier behind in the heat of battle. Deep loyalty that an employee shows an employer over decades of hard work and rarely missing work. Marital faithfulness that a man or woman shows their spouse even through the most difficult trials of a long life of marriage together. One example that comes to mind of faithfulness would be a man that many of you have probably benefited from in your life, Pastor John MacArthur. John MacArthur has been the pastor of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California since 1969. Yes, you heard me accurately. That's over 51 years of faithful exposition in the same pulpit for over half a century. I had the privilege of meeting Pastor MacArthur a few years ago, and there's a picture in my study that sits right here. It's almost as if he's kind of staring at me. And I have pictures around me that I do that literally on purpose of men that I think challenge me to be faithful to Christ, particularly as a pastor, like John Piper or MacArthur or Mark Dever. They're all up there kind of on the right and then right behind me. If you've seen any of my videos on YouTube, I got Martin Lloyd-Jones and Charles Spurgeon. These men, when I'm studying in the book and I'm getting weary and tired, are these silent reminders that faithfulness is not done in a night or in one Sunday, but it's over a lifetime. Faithfulness and commitment can be hard to come by, can it? Millennials, those of us born between 1982 and 2000, are notoriously stereotyped for having low levels of commitment, rarely sticking with a job, church hopping, In comparison to previous generations, my fellow millennials have been coined the term commitment phobes. The previous generations have also suffered from commitment issues too. Ever since no-fault divorce laws were enacted, divorce rates have soared and the delay of people getting married altogether has continued to increase over the years. Even in the church where the faithfulness of God is sung about, that we sang this morning, the faithfulness of God that is preached about, we find even some of the most faithless people can be found in the most deeply religious circles. That's where we find ourselves this morning in Malachi chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, open to Malachi Chapter 2, you can find that on page 467 in the chair Bibles provided. Today, we pick up where we left off last week in Malachi as we discover how deep and wide the faithlessness of God's covenant people had reached and how their bad example a long time ago is actually a fresh warning to us today in the church. Malachi Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. 
the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. And let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is God's word. Last week in our study of Malachi chapter 1, We learned about what acceptable and unacceptable worship looks like that is offered to God. So if you weren't with us last week, you can get on our sermon podcast and download that, and you can check it out to get caught up with the background. But this is basically what we learned if you want the cliff notes. We learned this, God cares how he is worshiped, so we should pay careful attention to his word as we worship him. God cares how he is worshiped. So we should pay careful attention to his word as we worship him. God spoke through the prophet Malachi, chapter 1, verse 1, as he was God's mouthpiece, God's messenger, for a timely word of examination and correction for the people of Israel. Remember, Israel was God's chosen and sovereignly loved people that he had set his love upon, his mercy upon. Not anything Israel did was pleasing to God to draw God's affections to them, but God chose them because he loved them. This remnant people of Israel were the thousands of people in the subsequent generation that would follow after them who had returned to the promised land after 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Within a time frame of about 100 years, God had raised up various leaders in Israel to bring about some spiritual reform, to get things back to the standard God had for his people. Now, these leaders were men like the prophets Haggai, 
and Zechariah, along with Ezra, the priest scribe, who expounded on the scriptures. And then there was Nehemiah. Uh, He was the governor who led the construction project of the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem. Now, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, which really gives you a framework for where we are in Malachi, you'll see that there were some positive changes. There were some sparks of revival in the lives of God's people. However, those changes didn't last. Over the course of time, the spiritual condition of the people sadly began to deteriorate. Malachi, whose ministry sometime around the mid-5th century B.C., focused on the sloppy worship that dishonored God's name. The sluggishly lax, the going through the motions, the checking the box, suspiciousness of God attitude had plagued this post-exilic people and had touched almost every person in the community. But who was the culprit? Who was to blame? Who was the leaven that leavened the whole lump? Well, we learned last week As God speaks to the whole nation, he does specifically call out a particular people. He calls out the priest, those who are to be the worship leaders, if you will, of God's people. These priests who are supposed to resemble something of the reverence and fear and honor and holiness of God were offering up lame animals mutilated animals, sick animals. You might say they were offering up dog scraps to the Lord of hosts. We can see that clearly in Malachi 1. Go back to Malachi 1, starting in verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how we despise your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you? Or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. Now, as we turn to Malachi chapter 2, almost like a long boxing match, God is not done putting the priest against the turnbuckle. He's not done putting them under the hot lamp. Like a plumber might address the cause of a flooding problem in your house. The Lord keeps his hand on where the pipe was busted. You see, above all things, the Lord cares about his reputation among the nations. He cares how people speak of him, represent him, and speak in his name. In fact, if you go back to Malachi 1 verse 11, God cares about how he is talked about and worshiped among the nations. Malachi 1, verse 11, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So, what does the Lord do? What does he do to vindicate his holiness? and bring reform and change and repentance to his people. Well, he keeps addressing, and he will expose one of the main problems in Israel's sloppy temple worship, ungodly leaders. These men were supposed to model what a godly life looked like, 
They were supposed to vet what sacrifices were acceptable. And yet, the bar for leadership had dropped so low that the worship of God's people dropped with it. The people who had been blessed and cared for by our faithful God had become increasingly faithless. Look again at verses 1 to 4. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. God makes it super clear. He's got the imposters right where he wants them. He's already got the mic up to their mouth. And God turns up the volume and he says unapologetically, it's the priest that right now I have beef with. That's very clear in verse 1. And now, O priest, this command is for you. And the Lord gives them to call an account. He calls them to the carpet, and he warns them to repent. It means change what you're doing. Change that attitude. Change what you are doing in front of my people before it's too late to listen to what God has said and take it to heart. The Lord is emphatic when he does that here in order to emphasize the importance of what he's trying to get across. That's why he says in verse 2, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart. Or again in verse 3, because you do not lay it to heart. Earlier this week, a tornado siren went off in Sebastian County because of some concerning weather that was approaching many of our homes. I remember the first time I heard that siren when I moved here. It was around April or May. I did what every non-resident of Fort Smith, Arkansas probably would do. I went outside. I thought, you know, I didn't really experience this in D.C. If there was a horn going off, it probably means a war. So I've watched enough storm-chasing videos to know I think I could do this. So I'm outside. The kids and Julie are all inside, a little more sane. I go out there, and I start texting folks. This is even earlier this year and this week. And then I was told a secret. I was told a little inside language in Fort Smith meteorologist world that when Garrett Lewis has his sleeves rolled up and the jacket off, that's when we should be worried. Otherwise, keep on keeping on, Fort Smithers. Brothers and sisters, in Malachi 2, this isn't a false alarm. This isn't some siren going off that the priests can casually ignore. They can't just keep on keeping on. God in Malachi 2 has his sleeves rolled up. He has his jacket off. Judgment is coming and judgment has already begun. The favor of God's blessings upon his people and the cursings upon God's people taught in Deuteronomy chapter 28 were already getting put on the big screen in their life. God had rejected. He had had enough. He had rebuked their offerings in worship. But get this, he not only rebuked their offerings, he rebuked the priest themselves. That's what the graphic language is in verse 3. He says, I will rebuke your offspring. He's basically saying this, I rebuke you, I rebuke your children, I rebuke your grandchildren, all who would come behind you in the priesthood. In other words, I'm cutting this nonsense off now. 
and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. In Leviticus chapter 4, we read what priests were to do with the leftover remains of a sin offering, much like you might do with all your extra Christmas gifts or leftover food that gets spoiled later. What were they to do? They were to take it outside the camp, the skin, the head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung. And they were to carry it outside to the ash heap and burn it. This is what the Lord basically says to the priest. I reject your offerings and I reject your very presence in temple worship. Back in Malachi 1.10, he told the priests that it would be better if they would just close the door, turn in the keys, turn out the lights, and get another job. Their worship was useless. God took zero delight, zero pleasure in their offerings. Every time the offering was presented, the aroma would reach to heaven and it would stink in the nostrils of God. And here in Malachi 2, the oracle only gets heavier. The Lord basically says, go away from this place with your offerings and its dung and make your home on the dung hill. Get out of my people's life and go with the dung and the fire you deserve. This was really a word of stern and terrifying judgment. Listen, if you just heard what I just said, you should be thinking in your mind, those were some really hard words. You see, the God in Scripture is kind. He is merciful. He is faithful. He is gracious. He is abounding in steadfast love. But the God of Holy Scripture is also a jealous God. He's a consuming fire. And above all things, God is deeply committed to showing off the splendor and beauty of his holy character. And he is relentlessly dedicated to displaying his authority and power over and through our lives. He is always faithful to his covenant to care for his people. You see, our God always speaks the truth. He's not into scratching, itching ears. Even sometimes his word may come to us like a burning fire that consumes our idols or like a razor blade knife sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to our hard and sinful hearts. That means this, when our God speaks, whether it's a word of comfort or correction, we should listen to what he says and take it to heart. There are many things that you and I can forget throughout a given week and be eternally okay. But when our God speaks, if we let his word go in one ear, out the other, we are held responsible for the light we've been given. You know, sometimes God sends us hard but necessary words of warning to prevent us from further wandering into sin. God sends us hard but necessary words of warning to prevent us from further wandering into sin. Listen, God's word is sweet. Last night I was reading Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2 with Avery. What, what other song would I want to read with her? That what marks the one who fears God is they delight in his law day and night. But beloved, sometimes God sends a hard word to his people as a severe mercy. It may hurt but it may prevent you from going to hell. I would imagine 
it's safe to say, that when a preacher stops reproving from his pulpit, he has stopped hearing from his God. When a preacher stops reproving, that means rebuking, correcting, challenging, making you slightly uncomfortable. When he stops doing that, you can almost guarantee he has stopped listening to our God. You see, we don't need just the passages that make us feel comfortable. We need passages of Scripture, God's sacred word that make us uncomfortable. Because that's how God keeps us humble. He keeps us reminded that we are finite. We are the creation and he is the creator. He is the potter, we are the clay. Daddy has no problem reminding who's in charge. So brothers and sisters, when you're reading your Bible plan... Read the Gospel of John. Read Romans. Read Galatians. Be a New Covenant, New Testament Christian. But do not forget your Old Testament. Because that's where our spiritual inheritance came from. That's where our Lord taught from. That's what helps us understand a fuller, more magnificent, amazing view of this God. Don't be intimidated by books like Malachi. Pull up the chair a little closer and keep digging. Friends, we should humbly receive whatever God tells us from Malachi or Philippians because he deserves our highest honor, our greatest fear, and the most exuberant praise from our life. You see, God's character, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is inextricably tied to the lives and worship of his people. We read in Leviticus 19, verse 2, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The Apostle Peter, in the New Testament, then exhorts persecuted believers who have been exiled through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia to live godly lives among their unbelieving opponents. We read in 1 Peter 1, verses 14 and following. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He's quoting Leviticus 19 to Christians. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, or spot. You see, Christians, those of us in here who put our faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, we will look distinct. We will look different in this world the more we become more like Jesus. You see, the more you and I look in Scripture to how Jesus lived, how Jesus loved, how Jesus taught, how Jesus persevered, how Jesus trusted in the faithfulness of his heavenly father, we will start to look strange to our unbelieving family and friends. Now, that is not a word to be weird. Jesus did not tell us on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the weirdos, for they are my family members. No, don't be weird or odd. But the more you look more like your Savior, the world will take a second look and go, what has gotten into you? But here, in Malachi's day, (laughs) this wasn't the back row Baptist that forgot this. This was the priest. Of all people, they should have known (laughs) to lead and teach, to be in front 
means you need to set an example of what a holy life looks like. These leaders were not therefore leading in a way that showed off God's holiness, his value in our life. That's why in verses 4 to 7, the Lord reminds them of the important role as leaders and raises the bar back up, because that's what God always does. He says, you mess up what I made, I'm going to put the bar back up where it always belonged. Notice what he says, starting in verse 4. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Here the Lord reminds them of a covenant that he says he had made with Levi. Now, as you may recall, Levi is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And from his descendants would develop the priesthood as we see in the Old Testament. So, some more names you might be more familiar with. Moses, the mediator, the human mediator that stood between Israel and God, was from the tribe of Levi. Moses, his, or I'm sorry, Aaron, his brother, was the high priest. And his sons after him. Eleazar, Nadab, and Abihu, they would obtain the priestly roles that we read about in Exodus 28 and 29 and Leviticus chapter 10. We're not told explicitly in Scripture that God made a covenant with Levi himself, but we are told in Scripture that Lord had established a covenant with the priesthood that descended from Levi. You can look at that language in Nehemiah 13, verse 29. Some of the earliest examples beyond Aaron and his sons were the sons of Levi. Do y'all remember the golden calf story uh, where the Lord uh, causes Moses to leave the camp and Aaron kind of blows it? He just lets the Israelites do whatever they want. They form a golden path, uh, calf and the Lord sends Moses back down and says, my people have lost their mind. You need to address them. Moses addresses them. He goes, well, how am I going to do this? And eventually, Moses rounds up the Navy SEAL. He rounds up the sons of Levi and says, take out the intruders. God has not been worshipped rightly. Number, in Exodus 32, we see that the sons of Levi execute God's wrath on the idolaters. Or remember Phineas. Phineas in Numbers 25 was jealous for God's name to be glorified because the Israelites were worshiping Baal, a false god. We read in Numbers 25, verses 10 to 13. And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. That means he was Aaron's grandson from the tribe of Levi has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. You see, the priests in Malachi's day were to be men who exemplified this type of zeal, this type of faithfulness, this type of jealousy for God's name. But they didn't do that. They had failed at this important and lofty task. They were to mediate, stand between God and his people. And the only thing they did well was block their view of God and hurt the people. That's why 
by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, if you're a student of biblical theology, seeing the meta-narrative of Scripture, even the best priest still blew it. No priest ever in the Old Testament embodied this perfect balance of truth and love, holiness and fear of God. That's why God would send a different priest of a better covenant, one who possessed the power of an indestructible life, one that would fit the bill of what Psalm 110 verse 4 says that the Lord would raise up a priest who would live forever. But this priest did not come from the tribe of Levi. He came from an unlikely group. He came from the tribe of Judah. You see, in the church today, we don't have mediators or priests in the same way we read about in Malachi's day. Because Jesus Christ is now our mediator and our great high priest. 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You see, unlike the priest in Malachi's day, Jesus perfectly embodied holiness, reverence. He always spoke the truth of God's word. He always lived in public who he always was in private. No hypocrisy. Feared God, loved God, was a pleasing aroma to his heavenly father. And Jesus, being both our priest and our example, became our sacrifice. Jesus gave not of an animal, a lame animal, a blind animal, up to God in worship. He offered himself, the unblemished, perfect lamb of God, died in our place under the wrath of a holy God. Instead of these animals being offered up, the God-man offered up himself. The great example, the perfect sacrifice, rose from the dead, and he ascended to the right hand of his Father, and he is now our great high priest. There is no vacancy in the priesthood. He will never die. He will never disappoint. He prays always for his people. So when you and I are at our lowest in our life, he will hold you fast. When you don't feel like praying to this God, he is praying for you. And when you are tempted to drift and drift and go back to the world, he seeks his own and he comes for them. And sometimes our Lord will break the legs of his sheep, put them back on his shoulder and say, you're coming with me back to safe pastures, my child. That's the Jesus we worship. That is the high priest we can come to all the time, every day. There is a 24-7 sign on his door and it's not closing anytime soon for his people. If you don't know this Savior today, come to Christ, repent of your sins, and trust in him today. Come speak with me at the door. Come talk with me. What else would I want to leave this building for? I want to stick around and talk to you. This high priest is faithful, even if everyone in your life is faithless. But the scriptures do tell us that Jesus did leave some people in charge until he comes back for his church. Some biblically qualified men to shepherd and care for his church. Men who will have similar priestly-like roles. And men who have true instruction come from their mouth. Men who, by God's grace, walk with God in public and in private. In peace 
and uprightness. Men who demonstrate a genuine love for God's people and a competency to handle his word faithfully. The New Testament gives the name of this office of pastor, overseer, or elder. There are three terms interchangeably used to refer to the same office. You might say, why am I bringing this up? Well, in Malachi's day, if you want to know the direction of the Israelites, look at the priest. Like priest, so the people go. You want to know the direction of a church? You want to know what its future will look like? Look at its pastors. Look at the men the church is paying, setting apart to shepherd the flock. You want to know the depth and spiritual maturity of a church? Look at the depth and maturity of its elders. Brothers and sisters, all people will stand before God in judgment and give an account for their life. Everyone in this room will. But spiritual leaders like priests in the Old Testament and pastors in the New will have a stricter judgment. James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Because of this stricter judgment, men who aspire to this office should do so with humility and much prayer. And a church who affirms and installs men to this office should do so with discernment and much prayer. What should you look for? What should we pray for in this coming year, in 2021 in CCBC's life? Read 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7. Read Titus 1, verses 6 to 9. But here would be kind of my basic summary. A good elder does his best to study God's word to honor God's name, and to feed God's people. A good elder will not be perfect. He is a sinful man, just like you. But a good elder will lead believers towards spiritual maturity and godliness and not cause them to stumble in further sin. And a good elder will be jealous for God's glory. It will anger him when God's name is blasphemed. And he will gently and sometimes firmly call out sin in one another's lives that is hurting our walks with Jesus. Pray that Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church would have eyes to see the gifts of leadership that God wants to bless our church with. Pray that I would grow in godliness too. Pray that I would be what God would have me be as your pastor. These qualities were to be true of Malachi's day with the priests. We see that in verses 5 to 7, but they failed. They were not merely imperfect. Listen, they were unrepentant. You should never look for perfection in a pastor because you're not going to find it. But they were unrepentant. Therefore, they were disqualified from this task. And the Lord said they need to be publicly exposed. Look at verses 8 and 9. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Listen to verse 9. God means what he says. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Parents, God has given you a responsibility to exercise authority in your home. God holds parents accountable for what you teach and the example you set before your kids. Husbands, God holds us accountable for how we lead, serve, and love our wives. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Church, 
God holds a church accountable for the pastors they hire and the teaching they tolerate. Brothers and sisters, may Malachi 2 serve as a warning to any of us in here who have a tendency, an unhealthy tendency, to elevate a pastor to the status of a celebrity. Over the past five years, I have been horrified about how many celebrity pastors have been found out. They've been exposed. They've been living a double life. They are unrepentant. They have lived a life that's not above reproach. And sadly, there are many churches that exist today where the pastor thinks he is untouchable and can do whatever he wants, and the church remains blind to his hypocrisy. Oh, may that never be our church. May we never elevate a pastor more highly than we ought to. Pastors are not invincible celebrities. They are servants of Christ and stewards of God's household who are called to be faithful, and that is all. Last time I checked, if you go meet a real shepherd, he doesn't exactly smell like a GQ magazine. He's got a stinky job. He's hanging out with stinky animals, doing a job that not many people want to do. There's nothing all that glorious about being a pastor, at least in this life. But there is a day coming that the chief shepherd will come and reward the faithful shepherds and expose the faithless ones. The best of men are only men at best. Let that sink in. Faithfulness always begins with having a healthy fear of God before you give reverence to anyone else. And that's what was missing in the lives of these priests. But guess what? (laughs) The Lord's not done. He turns on another light in the room and he exposes a different area that their faithlessness had touched. It touched their marriages as well. Look at verses 10 to 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you And the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. There are basically two issues wrapped up into one indictment that God exposes among the people of Israel. Mixed marriages and frivolous divorce. Throughout the Old Testament, God had instructed his covenant people to preserve their distinct witness by marrying within the covenant members of the Jewish people. You can read Deuteronomy 7 more about that later. But this is not a truth in Scripture that somehow says that mixed races are a sin, like black and white or or Asian. That's not what the text is primarily about. It was about mixed marriages that were being filled with different gods. 
The Apostle Paul alludes to this later in the New Testament, where believers are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 17. That's why in Malachi 2.15, God reveals why he wanted there to be equally yoked, God-fearing mom, God-fearing dad, because God was seeking godly offspring. God cares about his name, not only in the here and now, but the next generation. The Israelites were to teach the law of God day and night to their kids so that when they die, they carry on the faithfulness of God. That's what we see in verses 10 to 12, where Malachi then highlights the oneness of their God and the unity they shared as his covenant people. They were to worship the one true God together. But there was an abomination. There was a treacherous and faithless rebellion that would continue as the men, namely the priests of all people, were divorcing their Jewish wives in marrying pagan women. You can read more about that in Ezra 9 and 10. Women who worshipped false and demonic gods. These new marriages introduce new gods into the living room of God's house. As the faithlessness of temple worship was rejected by God, so the faithlessness of their marriages led to rejection once again. That's why in verse 13, it says they were weeping and groaning. In other words, the priests were starting to get a hint. God has closed up shop. He has refused. He has rejected. He has exposed us. But beloved, worldly sorrow may look genuine to the one who is grieving, but God is not deceived by a lack of genuine repentance. Worldly sorrow shows regrets for decisions you've made, while godly sorrow leads to repentance and change that shows up in visible fruit. The Lord then exposes their faithlessness by now turning to the heart of the issue. What is the issue? They have been unfaithful to their marriage vows. Now, if you've been looking in your translation, if you have a NASB, King James, New King James, CSB, HCB, NIV, ESV, I'm not going to spend two hours, because we've already been here that long, teaching you the original language in Hebrew. You look at almost any commentary and any scholar, Malachi 2, 15 and 16 is one of the most difficult verses to translate from Hebrew to English. And it's because there's a disagreement between the subject and verb. We're not really sure, is it the man who divorces is showing hatred for his wife, or is it God saying he hates divorce? Well, the answer is yes. Because both Old and New Testament largely have a consistent pattern from Genesis to Revelation. God hates divorce. God hates divorce because it's a disruption and distortion of God's good creation. He actually does violence, it says, to the covenant God had established between a husband and wife. When one gets a divorce, it almost always is the result of a hardened heart or an adulterous heart. A hardened heart is one who has said, I'm done with keeping my marital vows. What I promised in the past, I no longer promise today. An adulterous heart says, I found someone else I'm happier with than you. You make me miserable while this other person makes me happy. Either way, a hardened heart or an adulterous heart always seeks to rip apart what God has glued together. When Jesus was tested by the Pharisees on whether it was lawful for the people to divorce their wives for any cause, he responded with the authority of Scripture. In Matthew 19, we read in verses 4 to 9, Have you not read... 
that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. According to God's design, Jim Neuheiser has a very simple definition of what marriage is to be about. He says, marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman that has been established under God and before the community. Brothers and sisters, in a room this size, I don't have to be a prophet to know that divorce has touched all of our lives in one way or another. Maybe your parents got a divorce. Your children got a divorce. Your siblings have been divorced. Or maybe you have been divorced. And some of you have been divorced and remarried. This message is not intended to cover all the complicated and endless scenarios that married couples might find themselves in. Lord willing, next year, if Jesus doesn't come back or, you know, take me to glory, I hope to preach through the gospel of Mark at some point, and we will get to Jesus' teaching more extensively on this topic. Of course, if you have questions, you can email me, you can talk to me. You don't have to wait till that sermon series, of course. But for now, I want to leave you with this in light of our passage. If you are married today, the basic overall teaching in the Old Testament and the New Testament for husbands and wives is this. Are you ready? Stay faithful to your marriage vows. Stay faithful to your marriage vows. Don't try to break up your marriage and don't try to break up someone else's marriage. Marriage is hard work. That's why divorce happens. But that's where we learn more about the grace of God, isn't it? Marriage is about learning to love a sinner. Marriage is about learning how to die to self day in and day out for the glory of God and the good of your spouse. Marriage is learning how to carry your cross and show off your commitment to Jesus by loving another person that doesn't meet all your felt needs. Beloved, if there is anything I want all of us to hear today is this, whether you are single or married, fearing God is about keeping your commitments. Faithfulness is about being a man or woman of your word. And Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount. The Apostle James echoes it later in his letter. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Does your employer view you as a man or woman of your word? Do your friends have to guess which part of the week you're actually going to do what you say? Are you fairly consistent to do exactly what you say? Brothers and sisters, whether you are single or marry. Kids, this is for you too, if you're still awake. If you tell your mom and your dad, I'm going to clean the room. I'm going to do my homework. Clean your room. Do your homework. Parents, as early as you can, reinforce to your children, say what you're going to do and do what you're going to say. And if you have failed in keeping your marriage vows, confess that sin to God and receive his mercy in Christ. God hates divorce, yet divorce is not the unpardonable sin. You see, the gospel is really about the faithful one, our high priest, our perfect bridegroom who loves ugly, faithless sinners and makes them his beautiful bride. That's what every marriage is to look more and more like. The relationship between Christ 
and his bride, the church. Maybe this week, spend time reading Ephesians chapter 5 with your spouse. And if you have been divorced and remarried, be faithful today to your marriage vows. If you are currently married and you and your spouse are having a hard time, don't despair. If you're a member of Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, a part of being a part of this church covenant is that we speak the truth to one another. We encourage one another. We bear each other's burdens and sorrows together, which includes one another's marriages. Go talk to another godly couple. Come speak with me, and we can learn how to walk together. Faithfulness is the result of fearing God before you fear others. And faithfulness occurs when we fear God by keeping our commitments. And beloved, when we are faithless, and we will, Christ, who is faithful, will hold us fast. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are faithful. Great is your faithfulness. And you have demonstrated your faithfulness most clearly through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, you did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us. How will you not also give us everything we need to be faithful to you? Lord, I pray that you would take what has been taught today and use it for good in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.